Thank you, Laura. <clears throat> wow, that's loud. Okay, that sounds like I'm back on the planet Earth and not, I don't know what I was thinking. Okay, but good job with <laughs> all those names. Those are about as difficult as Deirdre Chance, so way to go. Uh, for those of you I don't know, my name is Deirdre Chance, spelled T-S-C-H-A-N-Z, because how else would you spell chance? Um, and I'm a, a member of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church, which means I get to come by invitation of the elders a couple times during the year and do the preaching. So I get to be here today. Um, if you're new visiting with us today, we've been working through our mission series called Our Foundational Story. Um, and we've been looking at um, how theology, how we as believers should be navigating society and culture. And we've kind of been looking at a lot of um, high and lofty and general principles, but about two weeks ago, we kind of took a corner, turned the corner, George led us through, like, what are our um, strategies in missions? And we looked at, he introduced four different fronts, and then Lawrence introduced us or unpacked the first front for us last week about being reconciled to God, about uniting each other, being united to God. And then this week, we're looking at the second front, which is uniting people to one another. And what we mean when we say uniting people to each other means a community of people who are united because they're reconciled to God and they're continuing to be reconciled to God thanks to the sufficient work of Christ. So the gospel creates community. The gospel creates community because it points people to relationships of service rather than just relationships of selfishness or dysfunction because of the one who died for his enemies. And Philemon, again, that Laura read and got us through all those great Greek names, <laughs> Uh, is really a living example. There's so many names of people because it's a real-life living example of real people. And it's a living example of the gospel-creating community because of the one who died for his enemies. A little bit of background on Philemon, if it's new to you. Onesimus was most likely a slave of Philemon in Colossae who had run away, and he had taken something. Uh, we see that in verse 18. Maybe he only took time by running away, or maybe he took some material possessions. But there was something that was owed by Onesimus. And then Onesimus met Paul while Paul was imprisoned and places his faith in Christ. And we see in the letter, too, that reconciliation is being pursued by Paul and Onesimus. I think you can even get from the text that reconciliation is being pursued by Onesimus through Paul. And so Paul writes this letter. He addresses it to Philemon. He addresses it to his wife, Atphia. He addresses it to Archippus, who is most likely his son. And then he addresses it to the house church that meets in Philemon's house. And Paul's kind of in a predicament here. He himself is imprisoned, and he's maybe not harboring a slave, but he's protecting or contributing to a runaway slave. 
which doesn't make you look good if you want to get out of prison yourself. If you're in some legal trouble, even if he is a Roman citizen, like that doesn't fare well for Paul. But Paul, it's clear in this letter, has something more at interest than his own reputation or legality. Paul's faced here with two estranged believers, two Christians who have embraced the gospel, but they're in disagreement and they're not unified. And these two believers who have both embraced the gospel have accepted this message of the gospel that is reconciliation, like Lawrence preached last week. And Paul's stating in Philemon that this gospel ought to be able, it's got to be able to bring together runaway slave and master, just like it has to be able to bring together Jew and non-Jew, male and female, like Paul talks about in other letters. And this letter has strong theological community lessons, too, because it's addressed to the house church. It's meant to be a practical, real rubber-meets-the-road test case for Christianity. If Christianity only stays in the abstract religious theory, it's useless. If Christianity can't help meet these practical needs, these real-life situations, it's pretty useless. So Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae, back to Philemon, because the gospel is meant to create a new community, a new reality, where reconciliation between humans, between runaway slave and master, can happen because humans have been fully reconciled to God, their creator, by Christ. N.T. Wright says, you know, Paul isn't asking for a paternalistic willingness to just let bygones be bygones, nor is he just offering some good advice to Philemon on how to maintain a dignified detachment that's untroubled by passion or anger. No, he's seeking the specifically Christian virtue of loving forgiveness, which will demand humility from both parties. Onesimus will need humility to go back to Colossae and seek forgiveness, and Philemon will need humility to sacrificially give and, forget, and um, pardon Onesimus. And the thing that Paul is describing to induce both parties to do this is the fellowship, the fellowship of Christ, the shared faith, Christian reconciliation is Paul's aim, and it's the driving force of the whole letter, again, N.T. Wright says. And it's expressed in that prayer in verse 6. That prayer in verse 6 says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith, your shared faith, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul's appealing to the shared faith between the master Philemon and the slave Onesimus in order to inspire Philemon to sacrificially give and forgive whatever's been stolen and taken from him. 
Philemon is to learn to put into practice his faith, their shared faith, for the sake of Christ. Paul, again, is appealing to the shared and equal faith of Philemon and Onesimus to inspire Philemon to sacrificially serve. Paul's proposal is like this massive, spiritual, practical collision that is meant to wipe out and flip the current society classes and humanistic standards that guide social relationships in order to create a new reality in the community. And as Paul does this, he embodies humility, he prays, He's thankful, he encourages, he's willing to make amends on Onesimus' behalf, but yet at the same time, he's bold enough to ask Philemon a direct request because he is an apostolic leader. And as we see these practical, specific experiences of faith playing out, you know, what spheres do we see them playing out in? We see them playing out as individuals in households, in a house church, and in the organized church. Of course, as an individual, we see Philemon being addressed, but not just Philemon. You know, it's our culture, I think, so many times we're like, oh, that's an individualistic thing. It just impacts that person, and we act like they're not connected to other people, like there's not a community that they're attached to. But here we see a different picture. Philemon is addressed, and Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, notices and addresses his wife, his son, realizing that there's been a burden, there's been an impact on them as well. Nobody's an isolated island, unaffected by others. And then extending that idea, the house church is also addressed. Again, Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, addresses the house church. He doesn't just say, oh, this is just Philemon's household. No, he's addressing the house church. It's like there's an expectation that if this is a burden of one household, it's a burden for the whole house church to carry together. There's an expectation that this common shared faith of them all is supposed to inspire them to carry this burden alongside Philemon and his household. There's an expectation that carrying this shared burden will actually grow them all together for good, that it's good and right to share our burdens in our local communities. And then finally, the organized church is addressed. In some sense, Onesimus has run to the organized church as Paul is the apostolic leader. He's gone to the organized church to seek reconciliation. Onesimus has looked to Paul, has looked to the organized church for help. And then Paul, as the leader of the organized church, he models, he teaches, he instructs, he makes specific requests, not out of a haughty place or like, I could do this because I'm Paul, the apostolic leader who saw Jesus and I did all those (laughs) miracles in Ephesus. No, he does it like Christ from a humble serving place. He makes these requests for the sake of Christ. And this type of community that we see is attractive, and it's missional. So why doesn't this seem to be 
this community seem to be the common American church experience today? Why don't our community and family and church experiences seem to be characterized by this generous service? One thing that I would submit to all of us to consider is that Americans and Westerners are characterized by a cost-benefit mentality. So if you're an economic person, I'm sure you're familiar with that term. It means that all the costs and all the benefits are assigned a monetary value, and then you sort of make a ratio to see if it's worth it. So if the cost is low and the benefit's high, that's great. But if the cost is high and the benefit's low, that's not really something you want to put your time and energy into. But it's also a term in behavioral ecology. Same idea, except for it's you're assigning weight to where you invest your time and your energy and what benefits come out of it. So if a behavior has low investment of time and energy, but good productivity for you, then that's a behavior you want to keep pursuing and that has adaptive predictions for it. But that mentality diffuses into almost every area of our American society. I would submit that that cost-benefit mentality, whether consciously or unconsciously, or subconsciously, I should say, that it gets into our mindset and we navigate our life, again, whether consciously or subconsciously, we're weighing, does this investment of time and energy of my money give me what I really want? We do it with relationships. We don't just enjoy relationships for relationship's sake. We're thinking, whether consciously or subconsciously, what will people think of me if I'm associated with that person, especially with social media feeds today? You know, if I'm, if I'm seen with this person, if I'm associated with that person, how does that affect my image? How does that affect my reputation? What does that give me? Sometimes we think about this consciously, sometimes it's a little more subconsciously. And we'll invest in relationships that we think benefit us. Sociologists um, kind of state it this way, that as you look at American society as a whole, because of this cost-benefit mentality, Americans are attracted to people who are powerful, attractive, and well-connected. Don't we do that? Because we know it benefits us. It's just what we're going to absorb as we live and move in and out of this society. So we might as well bring it to the forefront of our minds so we can deal with it. It's a consumerism-type mentality, right? And it affects our church. We come to church not just to worship God, but we come to church thinking, well, what is it going to give me? This is what I need from church. I would even submit it affects how we approach God. God is not always our prize, our goal to be enjoyed by God and to enjoy God. Too often, God is just something we step on to get to our real goal or prize. Maybe it's a happy marriage. Maybe it's successful career. Maybe it's not having to suffer. Maybe it's physical health because I'm not gonna trust God if I'm suffering and I don't have physical health. I'm not sure I can trust God if I don't have a happy marriage, if I'm not married. And so that really shows it's not God that we want. We wanna use God to get to what we really want. 
It's a cost-benefit mentality that we absorb. I would say also, the, another thing, another obstacle we've got to just realize and navigate, along with the cost-benefit mentality, is busyness. Americans work some of the longest work hours out of all developed nations. And I don't think there's anything that stresses us out on as much, on a consistent basis, as our vocational work. So why do we work so many hours? Why are we willing to be stressed for such extended periods of times for work? Is it because we're concerned what God thinks of us and we understand that we were created for work and we want to do a good job to reflect God? Or are we worried about what somebody else is thinking about us? What will my coworkers think? What will my boss, not in a respectful way, but in a how does this benefit me kind of way, think? Or, and or, have we absorbed that American cultural value that money really does buy happiness? And if it really does buy happiness, I better work more to get more money because that's what's going to make me happy. You know, again, we absorb these things because that's what our culture puts out and we're in this culture. But overworking comes at a price. The more we work, the more stressed we are. And then the less time we have to just unwind and enjoy, enjoy relationships, enjoy God, enjoy the basics that we have. And it's not just in our vocational work that we'll overcommit. We'll overcommit in our hobbies and our sports and our kids' hobbies and sports and our yard work and our gardens and our outdoor fire pits and our recycling efforts. Because what will the neighbors think if I'm not recycling the right way? And again, it's not out of an honor and respect for God. It's what do people think of me or how we eat and am I eating organic enough? You know, we'll just, we'll do it everywhere. I mean, we Americans, we are hardworking, especially Midwesterners. You're very hardworking, but it makes us very busy people that may prevent us from having those gospel community relationships. Um, you know, I think if I ask people, how are they doing, the answer that I will most often get, unless it's the meaningless good, the answer that I most often get, and it's across the continuum, it doesn't matter if they're a teenager or they're retired, the most common answer that I get is busy. I'm busy. <laughs> I used to tell my dad, like, I, I don't know. The busyness just finds you. You can run, but you can't hide. It, it finds you. <laughs> That's, again, our culture. But that attractive gospel community, like the one we see in Philemon, with generous relationships of service, they're not empowered by busyness or overworking. They're not empowered by that cost-benefit mentality. They're empowered by Christ. Philemon, we see seeking reconciliation, or in Philemon, we see reconciliation being pursued due to that shared faith of a slave and a master for the sake of Christ. Philemon could have demanded repayment. Nope, this is what he owes me. This is what I need. He could have demanded that. Paul could have demanded apostolic respect and obedience and financial support. Onesimus could have demanded, well, you need to treat me better. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's pretty logical if he ran away, probably wasn't being treated well. They all could have made their demands. 
But instead, we're seeing each of them being asked to live out relationships of generous service rather than petty demands because of the one who died for his enemies. What would it look like if we, as individuals, lived out generous service in our relationships rather than making petty demands because of Christ? What would it look like in our households if we lived out generous relationships of service because of the one who died for us? What would it look like in our house churches if we lived out generous relationships of service because of the one who died for his enemies? What would it look like if the organized church was viewed as a safe place to run to for reconciliation because of that one who died for his enemies and brought us into full reconciliation with God the creator? When we know Christ died for us, before we ever did anything good, even if we never did anything good, God was willing to die for us if we stayed in our hard-heartedness, our hard-headedness, our arrogance, our self-righteousness. When we know that he died for us in order to bring us back to God and a place of peace with God, and there's no room for selfish irritations or gossip or haughtiness or thinking you know better or you are better than somebody else. There's no room for petty frustrations that lead to those disagreements and disunity. There's no room for those fear-based decisions that can drive us or hurts and unforgiveness. We have been redeemed while we were enemies of God. And now, what do we have in return for that? We have God's indwelling spirit in us and the word of God to strengthen and equip us. We are the body of Christ. That means we're members of one another. Christ died for his enemies. We have this shared common faith so that his enemies could become family, family to one another and family to him and to God the Father through him. And the really great thing is that as we deepen in our union to God, we deepen in our union to each other. And as we deepen in our union to each other, we deepen in our union to God. Because we know we can't deepen in our union to each other without faith in God. <laughs> we'll use something to be a block. And so, um, oh, and again, I just want to reiterate, like living like that, it's good for the health of our community, but it's also attractive and missional to outsiders. We know that's not the way it is in other communities, even in other religions, even in atheism, it doesn't have that attractiveness. So I just wanted to end with a couple reflective questions. The big broad one being, how could you apply these gospel community principles as an individual, as a household, as a house church, 
and as part of the organized church. Do you need to extend grace and forgiveness to someone you're disunified with out of that same grace and forgiveness you have received from Christ? Are you like Philemon and you need to let go of a demand you feel justified to request? Are you like Onesimus and you need to come in humility and confession and make amends with someone? Do you need to share a burden you have with your house church? Or do you need to come alongside someone in your house church who has a burden? Or do you need to be connected to a house church to be interested and, and known and know others in their burdens? Do you need to come to the organized church for reconciliation? Do you need to respect and support the leaders of the organized church, just as Paul directed Philemon to do? for the sake of Christ. And again, all of this matters, not just for the health of our community, but for the attractiveness and the progress of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we cannot think enough about how amazing it is that you, the righteous, perfect creator of all humanity of all creation would seek us out when we know we have wronged you, we have wronged others. You would seek us out and you would save us and you would redeem us and instead of giving us wrath and punishment that we deserve, you would make us co-heirs with Christ and you would give us the very peace of God. We praise you and thank you for reconciling us back to you. And Lord, we also praise you and thank you for making a way for us to be reconciled to one another through the grace and forgiveness of Christ Jesus. We pray that these spiritual truths would impact us in practical, specific action. And we ask all these things humbly through our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.